impacts the world by increasingly our intention is to become fully a worshiping, caring, and sharing community Yeah, now some of you are looking, where is that? Well, it's right here on your message notes. And instead of doing scripture memory work, that's called memory work, that you are to memorize that. Why? So once we memorize something, the Spirit of God can speak to us about it. Okay, you can be seated. Now this week, I thought it would be good just so you can have if I was teaching a seminary class and I was teaching young men about what the Bible is about, what God's about, and what they are called about to equip the people so they won't be tossed to and fro, I would teach something like this. That is, I would go to Bible encyclopedias and Hebrew and Greek dictionaries and I would give them a very intellectual understanding of what covenant is. That's what you have in your hand here. Now follow as I read and get your ink pen ready because I'm going to have you underline and circle some key insights. When you look at this word covenant in the Old Testament, it is used, Barat is used 287 times and means, underline this, a solemn agreement with binding force. The ancient world, like the modern world, was filled with treaties or covenants, or you can write above the word covenant, agreements. That's what a covenant is, an agreement among people groups, often as military alliances. This analogy was used to describe and underline it, God's entering into a relationship with His people. Most uses of Barat in the Old Testament are the covenants that God made with His people. The first is that that He made with Noah after the flood, where God promised not to destroy the earth again. In the covenant established with Abraham, God promised to make His name great and to give Him a descendant from whom a whole nation would arise. In both of these covenants, God established, underline it, the terms, and He was the one who vowed to keep a series of promises. In the covenant of Mount Sinai, the Lord also sets the terms, that is His law, but He calls on the Israelites to agree to those terms. As His covenant people, they promised to obey His revealed laws. God promised to live among His people in the Ark of the Covenant. The promise God made to have a descendant of David on the throne is also called a covenant. Now, put an asterisk by this next statement and circle but, because this is a major story of the entire Old Testament. But God's people did not keep His covenant. They broke it again and again. Now, those of you that were not able to be with us the first Sunday of the year, Buzz Phelan presented his inspiration of the front of your bulletin. 
And he noted that God called the people through Joshua in Joshua 24, 15 to remember the covenant. And that covenant was to fear the Lord and be faithful. And he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Because they had come out where all of their parents had died after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's largely the story of the entire Old Testament. God would keep coming to Israel. And he said, I chose you to be my people. I chose you to keep this covenant to love me and to trust me and obey me. And that's the choice that we'll be looking at all year. Will I choose to walk out of wilderness living and live with Jesus being the living water of my life and learn in his presence and power to pour out as a servant, even as Haven of Grace is doing, the love of Christ to others. Now keep reading. See, but God's people, underline it, did not keep his covenant. They broke it again and again. Therefore, through Jeremiah, God promised to make, and here's where the New Testament is coming, 700 years before it happened, underline it, a new covenant with his people. A covenant where he would put his law in their minds and write on their hearts. By his indescribable grace, he would forgive their sins and iniquities. This covenant, the New Testament, sees as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, another word that's associated with covenant that I didn't ever hear anything about growing up in church, and that's this second word called karat. It's used 289 times and means to cut, exclude, and or destroy, that is, to make a covenant. While these three basic meanings seem divergent, they are closely linked together around the notion of cutting. Now, this is powerful, people. The majority of the uses of karat have to do with making, that is, cutting a covenant either between human beings or between God and His people. Now turn the page. Two different backgrounds have been suggested for this use of the word relative to covenants or treaties. Most scholars relate it to a right of ratification for a covenant in which the parties to the covenant walk through dismembered parts of a sacrificial animal. The tacit announcement, that is, they didn't say it, but it was implied, made through this event was, underline this sentence, let it be done to me as has been done to this beast if I fail to keep my pledge of covenant loyalty. Do you see the picture? I'm going to make a covenant with Greg here. I will be a friend to you for life. Greg would say, Phil, I will be a friend to you for life. We would go out and we would choose among our herd our first, our finest animal. And to pledge our sincerity, we would take that animal and split it and put it on two racks, and then we would walk through it. 
Something had given its life the seriousness of our covenant. And we would walk through and we would look at that and we would say, this is what it means to me. If I ever break covenant with you, may I be split asunder. Let that just soak on you. That when you got married, God's marriage is a covenant. Let that soak on you. When you became a member of this church, it's a covenant. See, read on. Other scholars have noted how many ancient treaties were cut into pieces of stone so that there was a permanent record of the treaty. Usually two copies were made, one for each member in the party to store in their respective temples. Many today consider the two tablets of the law that God gave Moses to store in the ark to be these two new copies. Now, go to the New Testament, Roman numeral 3. This word, diatheke, is used 33 times and means covenant, testament, will, in some encyclopedias, you can write in the word also, they'll use the word agreement. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement of commitment unbelievable. Now, the majority of the occurrences of the word are in quotations from or allusions to the Old Testament. In fact, the very term New Testament See, it means new covenant. It contains this word. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The blood he shed on Calvary and symbolized in the cup of the Lord's Supper is the blood of the new covenant. Both Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 8 through 10 demonstrate various ways in which this new covenant is superior to the old. It has better promises. Its glory will never fade. Now, much of what I took comes from Mounts' complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. Now, learn Roman numeral 4 and understand life, and I want you to circle those last three words, as God intended. See, that's why we all come to Bible study. We desire to live life as the author and creator God has intended it to be. And here are the four statements that I had you write down to start. Why? Because I don't want you to forget this in your life. That is, number one, God is a what? Covenant God. Number two, the Bible is a covenant book. Number three, covenant is the foundational concept which all Scripture is built. And number four, in Christ, we are to be a covenant people with Him and one another in a local church. Now, I have taken the word one another, and I'm not going to read all of these for you, but this idea that says, well, I have Christ in my life, 
but I am not in covenant with a local church. It is, it is nowhere to be found in the Bible. If I'm related to Christ, automatically, if I am following God's Word, I'm related to God's people. See, as you go to the bottom of all of those one another covenants, and they're all covenants, I love this quotation from the author of Men's Fraternity. We've been doing that Bible study with our men the last two years. Fill it in at the bottom there. Quote, no man can climb the highest mountain alone because God created us to be covenant-connected people. We all need cheerleaders. And as you go down that list of one another, it is incredible how many of those deal with encouraging one another because God knew life is hard. And we are easily, as his sheep, discouraged and distracted and defeated. See, we all need cheerleaders. Life is a team sport because life is about covenant. Now, turn on your back page there. And I want you this week, I will not review this today for we do not have time. But I want you to take at least a quiet time or even to this week, and read through our covenant. And just think about, if you're presently a member, how you're doing in that covenant. If you're not a member, I say again, when I invite you, and many have said, Pastor, I can't wait till January 31st because I want to become a member. I want to say it over and over again. Becoming a member of a church is not like going to a restaurant. I go to restaurants because I what? Like their food. Now, I want you to like what we're doing at West County. I sure wouldn't become a covenant person in a church that I didn't like, but it's so much more. Because then it's not about just me. We just sang that song. It's not about me. It is about the Lord God, and it is about me being faithful in these areas that God calls me from His Word to be faithful. Now go to your message notes, and I want you to see why we so struggle in covenant. And I want you to know, I do not teach you this where you will feel failure. I have failed millions, zillions of times. In my life, I failed as a son to my parents because I didn't understand covenant. I failed as a husband because I didn't understand covenant. I have failed so many times as a pastor because I did not understand covenant. But praise the Lord in His grace and truth. Where does He invite all of us? He invites us wherever we are in our journey of life and our process of life to learn and understand truth. And God always says, this is the first day of the rest of your life. This morning, I want to give you, as I just study Genesis to Revelation... 
I want to give you two characteristics of what it means to live covenant. And I see these from Genesis 2 to Revelation, the last page. Write it in Roman numeral 1. The first characteristic of a covenant-keeping people And if this shocks you, just stay with me, okay? This can change our lives. It can change our marriage. I mean, it can change everything. And I'll just tell you, in the 17 years that I've been your pastor, and in the 40 years I've been in ministry, I have never achieved yet in leading a people to understand covenant. So I am preaching this message to you with great agony and great burden and realizing, Lord, just just empower me by your grace to somehow communicate in Spirit of God. Open the eyes of our heart that we can understand your truth so we can live life as you intended. Roman number one, the first characteristic of a covenant-keeping people is fearing God. We make wise decisions or choices based on His Word. Now see, on the front of your bulletin jacket is that Joshua 24, 15. And we love that. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I want you to see the context of verse 15. Of course, is verse 14. And what does it say? Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Did you know if you don't have a fear of God, and I'm going to teach you what that means, you will not be faithful to God. In fact, if you don't have a fear for God, years ago I heard this and I didn't even understand the profoundness of it. An old preacher said, I've learned in my life the fear of God wipes away all other fears. And until you have a fear of God, in fact, you will live your life with fear. Now follow as we read. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors. Worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Now, did they live out that covenant? No. The way they lived is when God would do a great miracle for them, what would they do? They would praise Him, exalt Him, and love Him. But as soon as Normal life would come, which is constant challenges and needs. They would go to what? 
grumbling and forsake God. Do you ever ask yourself, why do I do what I do? You should. Now, Dr. Brand is going to enjoy the next little aspect because I'm going to help you understand why you do what you do. I'm going to mix sociology with psychology and history right now. I'm going back into the seminary class to say, young pastors, I want you to understand why you even do what you do, and I want you to know the people that you're going to be challenged to equip to be covenant people. A little history. Now, for all of you, like Dale Nallen, because I've been... And Sandy, I've been your pastor for 19 years plus. And Joe Brooks, as you guys grew up in either a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, or a Methodist church, often for me in the 50s, when we would take the Lord's Supper, before we would take the Lord's Supper, right in your hymnal, before all of the responsive readings, you had what? Your covenant. And the pastor would lead the people and we would stand and read the covenant of whose we were and what we were for. Now that was in the 50s and the 60s. Question, what happened in 1969? Now all of you that are younger than 40, you can just listen and learn history. What happened in 1969 that according to sociologists, they teach in universities that the culture of America and the theology of churches changed in America? What happened in 1969? I asked the worship team this morning. One said, well, that was when we went to the moon. Yes, but that didn't change our culture. Well, let's see. When was it that abortion came into place? Well, that was 1973, and it was even greatly influenced by what happened in 1969. See, I remember this well because I graduated from high school in, in May of 1969. It happened August 15th to 18th, 18 in Bethel, New York. What was it? You got it. Woodstock. Okay, put it up there for him, Justin. If you want to write those details down, it was on a 600 farm, acre farm in Bethel, New York. It was actually called an Aquarian Exposition, three days of peace and music, where over a half a million young adults went there and got drugged out. And they declared in America, and years ago I heard Dr. Dobson say that nothing has had a greater impact upon American culture and churches, churches too, tragically, than Woodstock. Because they stood up and declared there is no authority. There is no absolutes and freedom, remember, Freedom, Vietnam War was going. Freedom is doing whatever you want to do. 
Now, at the same time that's happening on the East Coast, on the West Coast in the late 60s and early 70s, and I'm a product of this because I was going to school at Eastern Washington State University right outside Spokane, Washington. What was going on in the West Coast as this was happening on the East Coast, Woodstock? The Jesus movement. And all of these, remember the hippies? Begin in the grace and goodness of God as He reached out to them, began to reach out to them, and they became Jesus freaks. That's where Christian contemporary music, Christian rock music, Christian metal music begin to rise up. Before 1969, you had a piano and an organ, and all of a sudden it was radical when the first guitar came into being. All of that comes out of that time, but here's where the theology of the church changed. See, the church, we're ever to be the truth, the absolute truth, the salt and the light. But tragically, often the church lets the culture affect it rather than church affect culture. And what happened is all of these hippies and even Jesus movement and the Jesus freaks came in and said what is true but left out truth. And they said, God is love. And He is. But they left out, fear the Lord God. Now, all of those scriptures up above there from Joshua 24, I don't have time to read them. But again, take a time this week from Proverbs 1, 7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And if you don't have a fear of God, you go through life, keep making unwise decisions. But as you have this fear of God, this reverence for God, you realize if I don't trust and obey God with all my heart, there's consequences, and it's called wilderness living. And so it's the fear of God that I actually understand that all sin has consequences. And if I don't fear God, that's what ushers me in. He is the one Lord God. I truly don't ever learn what it is to love God. Because loving God is not a feeling. Loving God is a submission and obedience to the authority of His Word. I can't tell you how often I have to deal, even in this ministry, with, it, with people that are living together in sin, calling themselves Christians. And there is no fear of God. I can't tell you how through my life it has been a constant, unbelievable, and it continues to be a battle in my life and struggle of trying to talk to people that call themselves Christians that totally have no fear of God. And they live in this same independence and rebellion to say there's no authority, there's no right or wrong, and it's none of your business. I'm a Christian. I'm going to do what I want to. That is not 
of the Word of God. See, look down at the bottom of your notes. And you see that bullet under Roman numeral 1? Write it in. A superficial view of God. That is just saying, I love God and I praise God and God is good without understanding. He is the one Lord God. And I am to fear Him and live by the authority of His Word. A superficial view of God leaves us with a shallow view of sin. See, we sang that several times this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. See, put it in there, Justin. Leaves us with a shallow view of sin. Read with me 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, this is a covenant, be holy because I am holy. And holy, Haggai, means separate. Be separate. That is, you're still in the world, but when you enter into this relationship with God, He has called you to be separate unto the world, not conformed to the world, but be transformed by His presence and power and His Word. Now, right in up at the top of the second page, number two there, loving God, and this is the second characteristic of a covenant-keeping people. First, I fear God. And that leads me to love God. We live and lead as servants of Christ. From Woodstock, it had already begun to occur. And of course, Woodstock just didn't happen in August. It had been a breakdown of the family throughout the 60s for a decade where children said to parents, we could care less what you say. We don't care, Mom and Dad. We're going to go. We're going to drug out. We're going to immoral out. We're going to live. We're going to sleep with whatever cat or dog comes along. When I went to college in the spring or in the fall of 1969, I could not believe it. But at least once a month, I would hear of some student group that had just locked the president of our university from getting into his office. And here would come the police force, and the Army Corps, and all of these, sometimes the FBI, to enable the president just because it was just this attitude, we're going to show there's no authority by the time spring came, so it would be 1970, at least once a month when there would be midterms or finals, right when the bell would ring, 
the alarm would go off and there would be a bomb threat in the building. And so the professors would dismiss class. That went on for two months so that the professors had a meeting, wised up and said, hey, the next time they throw bomb threats in any building, just say calmly, students, we're going outside, take your books, give them the test on the grass. And after we did that for a month, everybody decided it's not cool to try to take a test sitting on the grass. Forget the bomb threats. It doesn't work. I mean, this was a rebellious time. Remember, I've given you this stat. In 1957, there was one divorce out of 957 marriages. That's when I was six years old. In a decade, by the time I got to be 16, there was a divorce out of less than 100 marriages. And I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about how this impacts every one of us. That we think we can live the way we want to. See, go up there at number two. This is a part of our sinfulness. Loving God, live and lead as servants of Christ. That's a part of covenant. Let me just take you through these scriptures real quick and we'll close. Remember the context of this is the mother of the sons of thunder, or James and John, right before Jesus goes to the cross. So they've been with him the whole time. And she came to Jesus and said, can my son sit on your right and left? That is, can they be the greatest? And we pick up the story here. When the ten heard, that's the other ten apostles, heard about this, they were upset. They were ticked off. That's indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, for all of you that are married... Understand, when you got married, you got married for one reason. I didn't understand this when I got married. I didn't understand this when I became a young pastor. I didn't understand this. Is this what it means to be a Christian? It's to serve. You know why all of us have gotten upset countless of times in our life? in our marriage, in our church, and just in general. Because we don't get that. We like to be served, don't we? When our rights are violated, we become upset. Look at the next passage of Scripture. See, understanding covenant, look at Jesus. He wants to show his disciples in John 13, 1, the full extent of what he loves. See, when you really love, you become a servant. He says, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And he had just washed their feet. This week, as you review our church covenant, you will see 
If it's really to love the Lord, it's to love this people, and to love this people is to serve. And you have 12 expressions of service. That's our church covenant. Every struggle we have in our marriage, in our home, in this church, is because we do not understand covenant. To fear God, to serve God in each other. Look at the bottom there as we close. See that bottom bullet, write it in. An ignorant view. And ignorant's not an ugly word. It just means, I don't know. And that's why we're having this study. It's not to make us feel bad. It's to learn and understand life as God intended. An ignorant view of biblical salvation leaves us with an, and write it in, it's all about me attitude in our families, churches, and nation. That's why when you go to our webpage, out of the thousands of verses that I could have chosen to say, this is what we are, a covenant people, I chose these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20. If you've never memorized them, those are covenant verses. And those describe the tension and the battle that was going on in the early churches. And God spoke through the Apostle Paul to say to this church at Corinth, don't you know, because they were living that they didn't know, that your body is the temple the Greek word there is nos. It's our English word, sanctuary. It would be like saying, don't you know that your body is the worship center of the presence of God? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, covenant, you are not your own. For you were bought with the price of Jesus Christ. And in two weeks when we take the covenant of the Lord's Supper, what we're saying, because this is a biblical foundational concept, Jesus Christ was split on a cross. He experienced death on a cross. And by His grace, the Holy Spirit has brought me to see His death. And when I come to you, Lord, I realize His death and I make a covenant to you. I am no longer my own. I have been bought and purchased with you. I make a covenant with you, Lord God. Think what would happen in our lives if we did that and then came to each other as husband and wife and say, I am in covenant with God, so the way, wife, husband, I will love you as Christ loved me and died for me. That's a covenant, whether I like what you do or not. And love is lived out. And wives say, husband, in covenant to God is my love for you. I will respect you even when I don't like you because I will trust Almighty God to work in you and change you as He changes me. 
And we would come then together as the Spirit of God draws us in what's called a local church. And in covenant with Him and covenant with family members, we become this together gathering of covenant families. And that is so radically different than what our churches are today or our marriages are today or our homes are today where everyone is like Woodstock or most everyone like Woodstock to say, don't tell me how to live my life. I will do as I please. That is not Christian. Is this not good if we could receive it? And start with my walk with my God, my walk in my marriage, my walk with my family, my walk with my church. Let's pray together.